Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In the dark forest, Dante encounters the lion. A lion is described as so terrifying that even the air around him is trembling with fear. That is when he meets his guide, Virgil, who gives him the strength to go through the rest of the afterworld. The surreal lion hoops pay homage to this moment. The shape echo the tail of a lion with its textured tuff at the end. Wear them as a reminder to give you courage through the winter months. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is the world-renowned art historian, curator and surrealist expert, Dr. Alice Mann. Currently the Deputy Head of the History of Art Department at Cambridge University, where she is the specialist in modern and contemporary art history, Alice studied at Trinity Dublin and then the Courtauld before taking up her position at Cambridge, where she has been for the past 20 years. A renowned writer, Alice has authored numerous publications, including the recent The Marquis de Sade and The Avant-Garde, Surrealism and the Politics of Eros, and Eroticism in Art, as well as editing books on Dorothea Tanning, Behind the Door, Another Invisible Door, and countless essays on the likes of Leonora Carrington and more. A highly esteemed curator, Alice was also the mastermind behind the sensationally successful major retrospective of the American surrealist Dorothea Tanning for both the Reina Sofia Museum in Madrid as well as Tate Modern here in London and has acted as a curatorial advisor to major exhibitions on modern and contemporary art, including Fantastic Women, Surreal Words from Mary Oppenheim to Louise Bourgeois at the Louisiana Museum of Art, Couples Moderns at the Hayward Gallery, Dreamers Awake at White Cube, as well as many more, including the Fitzwilliam Museum, Welcome Collection, and the Irish Museum of Modern Art. But the reason why we are speaking with Alice today is because she is also an expert in one of the most interesting surrealist artists to ever exist, the brilliant and magic painter, designer, illustrator, and author, Leonor Feeney, whom she has acted as the curatorial advisor and the author for the first retrospective for a show titled Leonor Feeney, Theatre of Desire, 1930-1990 at the Museum of Sex in New York. And I'm so excited to say is the artist that we will be discussing today. Alice Mann, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on today. So Leonor Feeney is one of the surrealist artists who, in a way, is lesser known, but, you know, oh my gosh, is one of the most interesting artists ever to exist. I've also noticed that a recent years, thanks to your expertly curated exhibition, Theatre of Desire, she is becoming much more known and admired by many contemporary artists today. I want to get into Leonor Feeney just in a moment, but for our listeners to just understand a bit more context about women's place in surrealism, I'd just love to start off by asking you, how were women perceived in surrealism? Because after all, Breton did write in his 1929 manifesto, the problem of woman is the most marvellous and disturbing problem in all the world. Mm. Yes, well, thank you. That's a lot in that. But it's true that with a lot of the women's surrealists are gradually getting the recognition they deserve. 
Uh, I mean, obviously we agree on that, but I think until the art market museums actually start to support them considerably, unfortunately, a lot of people and the public listeners, students won't actually know them apart from one or two tiny works. And André Breton, the second surrealist, did say that woman was the greatest problem in the world. And he was talking, I think, something slightly lost in translation, perhaps, in the sense that for him, women were enigmatic. For him, women were something that was a source of inspiration. They were muses. They were marvels. But it did mean the first decade of surrealism as a movement which began in 1924. We have this great curiosity about a young generation of predominantly male artists around a new female type. And I think what's interesting uh, for me, I usually defend their intrigue with women in terms of the fact that they put sexuality center stage. They looked at the body, eroticism, desire, things which were either kept under the counter, they were seen as countercultural, they weren't something you put on a canvas, but also that then intrigued a lot of women artists, fabulously intelligent, well-read, talented, young international women who then decided, this is the movement for me. And that I think begs the bigger question, why did women come to surrealism rather than why did male artists, why were they so excited by women? We all know male artists are obsessed by women. We all, I mean, it's true. It, that's a long-standing tradition. It's the history of art. The difference with the 20th century is simply that there were no longer the same stories around these gorgeous, objectified women. You couldn't show all these naked virgins for the sake of pretending you are teaching an audience how they need to control their lust in favor of the soul and greater noble thoughts. So I think what's fabulous about surrealism is that it, as I say, it puts sort of dream and sexuality and desire center stage. And then women thought, hang on, this speaks to me. And they were determined to be new types of women. They didn't want to be mothers and wives and sign up to the old institutionalization of what a woman would be. It was just a procreator. So I think the fact that they flocked towards this avant-garde movement a group of radically different international artists did too, reminds us that actually there was a lot in surrealism for women. Yeah. And what did they explore as opposed to men in their work? Well, in some ways, we have a tendency to sort of want to back up between the sexes. And I think actually one of the things about the surrealists was they were intrigued with psychology, with the psyche, with psychoanalysis. And of course, they were thinking about that in sort of gender neutral terms. So Freud was writing about sexuality, repression, Oedipal desire, and that gave different roles to different people in the family and in sexual relationships. And I think for a lot of the men, they were thinking through masculinity. André Breton himself was training as a doctor. He dropped out of medical school. He starts writing. He starts collecting, thinking about art. So I think they were rejecting a lot of what was expected of them. And the women, too. Also, what's curious is in the late 1920s, it's such a fabulous heyday for art and ideas and for the avant-garde, whether it's sort of Weimar, Germany or Paris or New York. But one of the things that's becoming of great interest to artists and writers and intellectuals is sexology, is thinking about desire and gender types. And again, the kind of way that we're nurtured by society into particular sexual roles. Absolutely. I mean, Leonor Fini was famed for her powerful and erotic depictions of women. I mean, how did she specifically fit into this surrealist circle? Well, it's curious because a lot of women tend to be portrayed as these exotic kind of debutantes who enter into the arena and are sort of prey for these men. And, and I don't, <laughs> I just don't buy that because yeah. <laughs> I think it flatters a lot of male egos and a lot of male writers feed into that myth. Feeney certainly, by the time she came to Paris, for example, and joined the Surrealist group in the 1930s, she was an artist in her 20s, well-established, making money as a portrait painter. She was very well-read. In fact, she was appalled that people were amazed that she had read Freud and Nietzsche. Oh, my God. She was sort of saying, oh, of course I've read these. I'm Italian, you know, and we read these things and I'm in circles. <laughs> so it was, there's a lot of that kind of presumption that, as I say, women who sort of fell into surrealism were naive and then sort of courted by the older Max Ernst with his beautiful blue eyes. They knew what they wanted. They were curious. They were networking. They wanted to get exhibited. They were talking to writers. I mean, they really are the definition of the modern woman who knew she wanted to be an artist. It didn't matter if she was female or woman. And therefore, they sort of remind us of that suffragette type who was just going to break boundaries. I think with Feeney, it's interesting, while she wasn't trained, she was devouring art history. So she's growing up in Trieste. She's advised by someone like Georgia de Curico, oh, you should, you know, check out effectively what the Surrealists are doing in Paris. She goes there, she meets Dali through de Kirko, who says, then now you must meet André Breton. So she did what any 
dare I say it, jobbing writer or artist would do when you go to the major city. And she went to the cafe where she would meet people. She was dramatic in that she was known for having... um, you know, dyeing her hair, wearing fabulous yeah. gowns. Amazing photographs. Yeah, I mean, she knew how to make an entree, and that's fair enough. And this is the rise of the cult of the artist. And there's a famous story about her wearing scarlet stockings of a bishop that she'd bought in Rome, I think it was. Uh, and so she was wearing priest garb, but on her lovely long legs. And when André Breton first met her in a cafe, he was, you know, thought this was wonderfully wicked. <laughs> And so that was a way of getting attention, getting onto that table. And and we find that with a lot of, of women artists of that sort of group, that's what they had to do. And often, actually, I think clothes was a language that they could use to actually get that entree. I mean, we have the same with people like Leonora Carrington or Claude Gain or people, but they would dress up to actually make a first impression and to declare themselves. Uh, and very cleverly so, because the male surrealists tended to do the opposite, ironically. They tended to be sort of radical avant-gardists who wore three-piece tweed suits. Yeah. So that was their way of mocking their father figures, trying to look like these pipe-smoking intellectuals. <laughs> um, but the women certainly used costume as a way of grabbing people's attention and saying, this is what I'm going to do. That's so funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking back to someone like Eileen Agar and her many hats or kind of seashells that she would attach to herself and blindfolds and exactly. diamantes from all different around, around the world. It's just amazing. They kind of strive to be the embodiment of surrealism themselves. Yes, yes, that's a good way of putting it. And also that sense of performativity, yeah. which I think we associate with much old contemporary artists, yeah. whereas they were really paving the way and saying, yeah, that you, you live what you're teaching, what you're painting. And surrealism always from the start emphasized that it was a worldview, it was a philosophy, it wasn't a style. And I think that meant it was open to this idea that you could stage yourself as a surrealist. I mean, Dali was famous for doing it, albeit in a rather quacky, rather unattractive way or in a diving <laughs> suit in London, 1936, you know, but they got stick to the dresses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think and also if you think about them as having not a lot of money, because often we presume their women are quite aristocratic and they can be from well off families, but often they were disowned or cut off from their fund once they refused to marry and do effectively what their parents expected of them. And so I often think, too, about how clever it was that they would sort of get secondhand clothes, old costume, deliberately. Feeney was famous for ripping her clothes way before punk feminism. You know, she was kind of she'd rip the elbows, rip the top, create these sort of stockings. I mean, when she's photographed by people like Dora Maher and she's got ladders in her tights, she knew there were ladders in her tights. Yeah, surrounded by her 70 cats. Exactly, (laughs) who probably were constantly ripping her tights. But I think there was a knowingness there about this idea of desire ripping the clothes off and she played into that. Absolutely. So when was it that you first discovered her work? Oh, gosh. So that's, I'll sound old now, but I discover, as I tell my students, actually as a teenager. I mean, when I was 18, 19, uh, a student studying history of art in Trinity, Dublin, And I became intrigued by women's surrealists just as a kind of pet hobby. I had read the Haydn Herrera biography of Frida Kahlo, and I started wondering about more women artists. The only book that was ever devoted to women's surrealists was Whitney Chadwick's 1985 book. Now, I was a school kid. But sort of 10 years later, when I was writing a dissertation on women's surrealists as a student, exploring it on my own, and I went to Paris... And there was the Gallery Dion, which then became the Gallery Minsky, which represented Lenore Fini. And in the summer, there was an exhibition where I first discovered, and I have the catalogue I bought, a little catalogue of Fini's work, and I was sort of immersed in Fini's art. And that started something which 20 years later, I'm still writing about her, and now at least curating her a bit more and insisting exhibitions include her. But that was where I first sort of came across a, a little Sphinx by Feeney from 1943-44. It's called the Guardian Sphinx. And it's where there's a Sphinx creature on a tomb. Yeah, I was intrigued because it was very illusionistic as a style, you know, not unlike Dali. So you went to the Pompidou and you found Max Ernst, Dali, everybody. And then you had to go down to the fifth to find this little gallery which had women artists. It was genuinely the left bank in that sense and a bit of a pilgrimage. And I kept in touch with that gallery. This is where you kind of applied for travel grants as a student. So I got those. And then I went to New York the following summer and went to the CFM gallery who had gorgeous books illustrated by the Norfini. So I sort of started this tour. When I did my PhD, I was working on surrealist exhibitions, which meant I increasingly then worked out the network around surrealists and was intrigued by the fact that there were some women who were allowed into the network 
and some who weren't. Yeah. And that remains point of contention for me because I often found it was very much done on a base of personality. Uh, I was lucky. I got to meet a lot of these people when I was living in Paris doing my PhD, but they would say, oh, she wasn't a surrealist. And I would think, well, she exhibited with Max Ernst in 1936. But a lot of it was if a woman artist didn't sign a manifesto or toe the line, or perhaps in the case of Fini, she was quite vocally negative about André Breton. Yeah. So I met other artists, women artists who loved him. But Fini seemed to feel he was arrogant, more misogynistic. He held court and she wasn't going to take that. <laughs> and so I actually think it's sort of a personality clash often. If you think about who she did like, she liked Bellini. She was making movies. So I think she liked actually far more dramatic men, frankly. Yeah. Uh, people who were in theatre, people who were in film, more Hollywoodian characters. She didn't want to sort of sit and sip and drink coffee and talk philosophy in quite the same way. Not into some of the three-piece suit men. <laughs> no, no. She sought out male muses for herself. Yeah. And, and Breton probably just didn't fit that bill for her. But she was included in major exhibitions. Max Ernst promoted her. I mean, a lot of these men were desperately hoping to have a relationship with her, it has to be said. <laughs> she was fighting them off, I think. But again, she knew what she wanted. And one of the reasons then she wasn't always included in the official histories was that she didn't fit that bill. Yeah. But let's face it, a lot of women's realists were removed from the official histories and they're only now getting the the attention they deserve. And also, I think we're having to really say that they were included in a lot of exhibitions. They were there. It's just that they weren't bought. And that's where the marketplace actually tends to dictate the history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned just now she grew up in Italy, in Trieste. I mean, she was born in Buenos Aires in Argentina in 1907. Yes. Had Italian ancestry on both sides of her family. I mean, can you tell us about her childhood? I mean, what was her family like? What was her upbringing like? Yeah, curious. I mean, somebody has to make a movie about her, really. I was thinking that after this podcast. Yeah, yeah, you could start, maybe. But she was, Herminio Fini was her father. And so he's set very much as this uber patriarch, this very Catholic man. I mean, but Salvador Dali had the same kind of father. So that's not uncommon. Her mother, however, was something like 20 years junior to the father. She married at the age of 18. Uh, her name was Malvina. So she's in Buenos Aires, gives birth to a little girl, Fini. And bef- while she was not yet two, apparently her mother just had it enough of this controlling husband and she fled back to Trieste. This is part of the story. Now, Fini was excellent at giving interviews. Uh, and I think also when an artist is, dare I say it, elderly, they slightly embellish <laughs> the great tale. But it is telling that when she moved back to Trieste, she, she moves back to kind of a matriarchal setup. So there's a strong grandmother figure. She's there with a young mother who encourages her artistic leanings and education. Uh, She has an uncle figure who has a well-stocked library. And for my part, every avant-garde woman artist I deal with, it's usually a library. It is usually an uncle, a father, a male relative who allows the female into the haven, into the academy, into those forbidden fruits. Yeah. It was like that in the Renaissance, in a way, they had to have fathers who were artists to even become an apprentice to an artist. Exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah, Artemisia Gentileschi, exactly. The same thing, kind of sense of actually who allows them to break into a space, which is usually denied to women. And Feeney discovers books. Uh, that's where she's reading Freud and Jung and looking at Renaissance, the Mannerist painters. Yeah. She's very keen on. And curiously, when she visited... London in the 1930s, I was intrigued by the fact that she was really interested by the pre-Raphaelites, which makes a lot of sense too. So if you think about hair, and if you think about how the male pre-Raphaelites control that sort of repressed hair, with Lenore Feeney's paintings, it becomes Leonine, these big locks that are just wreaking havoc on the the (laughs) canvas. But in any case, so she has a turbulent childhood, and that is important because There's this oppressive father figure. Doesn't he try to kidnap her at some point as well? He does. So he keeps sending people over to try and get her back. He's very wealthy. Yeah. By the time she's a teenager, he's sending photographs of yachts saying, I've called this yacht Leonore after you. Oh, my God. We have property. We have (gasps) money. So he's trying to woo her on those fronts. And it's reported again. She said she often dressed as a little boy so that she wouldn't be kidnapped. She (gasps) did have one important traumatic scenario where she was almost kidnapped she was chased and she recalls this memory and that she often was fearful that her mother would not come home fearful that when she walked down the street she'd be taken yeah and this sort of starts to interweave with her stories about being a young girl dressing up in costume going down the street 
So you can see how there's an element of disguise, literally, and masquerade, and the fact that, again, it's sort of an adventure for her. There's also a rather traumatic episode that she recounts where she suffered from what seems to have been very severe conjunctivitis. Yeah. Where her eyes are bandaged for two months. And as a result, uh, there's some suggestion, as you can imagine, if you couldn't see for two months, there's sort of a you start getting more introspective or creating landscapes of the mind. So these all feed into the sense of why she might have lent towards dream and the psyche and surrealism. Kind of developing all these imaginations and sort of complex visual imagery in her mind. Mm, mm. And, and that happens. I think that when you are young and you see things and you pocket them away or squirrel them away, and then you start finding that that perhaps is the best community for you to join. So she doesn't have a kind of formal education. That's, again, not unusual for a surrealist and avant-garde because they really rejected the academy and they, they were desperate to do something radically different. But she also has sort of recounts stories of visiting morgues to see dead bodies. Oh, wow. Corpses, yeah. And that's, I mean, that has to show a leaning for the macabre. Yeah. For a kind of, <laughs> I doesn't it? So. I don't think it's what everybody does I on a weekend. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I, that's one thing I can't say. I didn't sort of, as a young teenager, think I must go to a morgue and see a dead body. <laughs> but that totally comes through in her work, though. I mean, it's fascinating. Yes, doesn't it? Yeah. And the sleeping bodies. Yes. And she has a story about seeing a beautiful young male. Again, you can see her feeding this to the press. <laughs> but seeing a beautiful young male gypsy man. And that when she went to the morgue, there was a public room in the morgue. So it's also quite curious. You could go, and, and I don't know if this is part of people's initiation, because these are totally naked corpses, but she recalls a beautiful male gypsy in the morgue and how intrigued she was by it. And I can't get that sort of little story out of my head without always thinking of her later paintings of the 40s or male nudes, because they're prone like that. They're sleeping and passive. And there must be something within that memory where she remembers having the, the greater power, the hierarchy over this dead, beautiful body. Because when she stages men in her paintings, they tend to be passive, beautiful, muse-like. So she reverses roles. She's the scientist, the predator. So I, I do think some of her stories make perfect sense when you come back to the canvases. Even if they're, as I say, elaborated or not, they still show you these little things that keep coming back in her body of work. But I mean, the sort of 1948 Little Hermit Sphinx, which is in the Tate collection, I mean, it's got a human lung suspended in this, what looks to be this back door and this little boy Sphinx-like figure just sitting underneath this suspended human lung. <laughs> yes, yes. There is quite a, a strong overlap, I think, between a lot of surrealist imagery and medicine, anatomy. Um, but true, that work, the Little Hermit Sphinx, that's a rather sad little... I mean, sad in the sense of it makes you feel sad. It's powerful work. Always that sort of, yeah, you're right, that sort of dilapidated, bizarre piece of flesh and lung. And I could never fully understand that because it does look, I mean, yet it's quite pretty. Yeah, jewel-like. Yeah, fleshy. There's something she's wonderful at getting texture, whether it's flesh or fur or foliage. I think she's got a really fabulous skill for seducing you through texture that's 47 48 and that was just after she again had had a medical trauma if you like she was diagnosed with a cancerous tumor she has a hysterectomy it's all very traumatic as you can imagine that's very serious surgery and what does she do so she doesn't write a story about that or deal with the support in that way she continues to paint the sphinx but then she puts this rather childlike sphinx which is which is where it's poignant it's slightly more of an infantile sphinx in a doorway, nature is the sort of safe spot for the Sphinx and for Feeney. But it is the idea that perhaps that fleshy, deflated womb or something in that is hanging as opposed to a lung. The life source is dead. And at the same time, she has insisted that she never wanted to be a mother. She never yearned for children. She said she was the anti-Eve. <laughs> Again, it's the type of thing that you think, why didn't more women say that? Yeah. I mean, you know. And in the 40s, she said, of course I didn't want children. I wanted lots of men and cats and paintings. And, <laughs> 70 and, cats in total. <laughs> yeah. Would you ask that of a male artist? And Whereas they're allowed to say I was too broke, too poor, you know, going out with too many women. But she was saying no. So that worked for her. She says broken eggs, flesh, are partly because she knew she could never have children. Totally. And so just to rewind a bit, sort of in the 1920s when she's just 17, I mean, she's already exhibiting portraits at this time. I mean, like you've said, she's already self-taught. When she's 22 in 1929, she's already featured in a group exhibition in Milan. And then the early 30s, around 1931, she moves to Paris. I mean, this is really interesting. I mean, do you think she would have known about the surrealists from living in northern Italy and travelling around those 
circles. Yes. In Milan is where she meets Giorgio de Chirico. Oh, wow. So, and de Chirico is someone who, in the 1920s and 30s, the Surrealists are courting him. They like his metaphysical paintings. So they're intrigued by him. And, you know, Breton sees de Chirico and thinks, my God, I found Surrealism in painting. De Chirico has no interest in being a Surrealist. He's interested in his metaphysical group. But he does see something in Lenore Fini, saying this is where the younger artists yeah. are at. He sees them as this sort of wild bohemian group who seem to be anti-authoritarian in Paris. <laughs> and he does advise her to check out the Surrealists in Paris. And he was right because the Surrealists at that moment in the early 1930s were trying to find Surrealism in painting. Yeah. So the beginning in literature. It's curious because she's terribly good as a portrait artist. And that has been neglected because we don't tend to talk about Surrealist portraiture. It's all dreamscapes. She was excellent in terms of how she adapt the genre of the portrait to a surrealist lens it didn't just mean that they were nude portraits but she would have symbols in them and a bit more renaissance style like that clothing or foliage but the other thing is that her early work's quite rough in terms of um her painterly style her palette was very pink and fluffy almost then she moves into that illusionistic really fine detailed oil painting there's a huge turning point for her then when she's in paris and she's meeting max ernst and dali and i think she realizes she can really do surrealism. She's the ability to do illusionistic landscapes, paint somebody's face that's recognizable. And that. But she's also interested in mythology and philosophy. That's where her real intellectual kind of curiosity starts finding its own beat. Uh, and she's hailed as a very exciting surrealist in the mid-1930s. I mean, that really is huge for an artist to be leading a show in New York, in London and Paris. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting. I'm kind of unaware of her really early works, but just know the ones from the late 1930s. It's what's also really interesting that although she's also exhibiting with people like Max Ernst, she's also got these great friendships with people like Mary Oppenheim and also Leonora Carrington. She's also photographed by Lee Miller. She's photographed by Dora Maar. I mean, can you tell us about the friendship between the female surrealists? We hear so often about the male surrealists being this group and then when we read Leonor Feeney or Leonora Carrington's letters to each other or their photographs of each other it's so interesting that they were also such a solid group. That's a really good question because I think again we have a slight tendency to pitch women artists anyway against women artists but women surrealists as being unsupportive. Actually it was also a time of war of course so in the mid-1930s women were discovering surrealism but by 1939 they were suffering from the impact of war and that's when a lot of these friendships really were consolidated. So Leonor Fini is very friendly with Leonor Carrington. Leonor Fini did have a relationship with Max Ernst, it has to be said. So did they all, did Dorothea Tannock and Leonor Carrington? I think there's, there's a little bit of the blue-eyed boy. What's kind of telling is she felt Carrington was better suited to Max Ernst than her. And she said that he always had many women on the go on, and that didn't suit her. But what's interesting is that she does visit Anne-Lenore Carrington in saint martin d'Ardèche in France in 1939. And that's where Lee Miller is also visiting. So they all would flock. This was, a, you know, an ancient 18th century house that they lived in. But they would go down there. Lee Miller photographs her there. Lenore Carrington is living there with Ernst. And Feeney visits and they're having dress up. They're having meals together. They're having arguments together. But when Max Ernst is imprisoned as an enemy alien, as it's called, because he was a German in France, Lenore Carrington starts to have a, a total a nervous breakdown. She's fraught. And she's corresponding with Feeney, who's giving her the moral support as to how to cope with that. So it's not just friendship in the sense of you're doing great work and she does a portrait of her. And that's a form of great respect, obviously. She said Carrington was a great revolutionary. So Anne Merritt Oppine, likewise. So she does a portrait to show who her friends are. But she's also writing saying, I know you're broke. You know, your lover has been imprisoned. Where do we go next? Nobody wants to run home to their family. Do they stay in Europe? Do they go to Mexico? Do they go to New York? These were all, that was where there was a, a network of people trying to help people. And Dora Maar, again, if you think about, it's often interesting if you compare how a woman artist portrays another woman artist, invariably they stage them in a photograph or painting as wonderful viragos. as just strong, formidable creatures who can stand alone. And I think a lot of the correspondence you read between Merritt Oppenheim, Feeney and Carrington reflect that sense that you can cope, you are a great painter, stick to your art. Uh, and therefore there was a genuine camaraderie between them as, as people who might have been competing for exhibitions and for Peggy Guggenheim to buy their work. or That wasn't the important stuff. The important stuff was the art. 
I mean, it's interesting because during this time, she's really kind of coming into her own style as well. If I look at the portrait of Mary Oppenheim from 1938, or also the particularly the one I love is the self-portrait with a scorpion. I mean, there's always so much kind of imagery mm. in Leonor Feeney's work. You know, it first appears like a sort of slightly surreal portrait, but then when you look in, you know, on her left hand, she has this silver glove and just peeking out under it is this scorpion. I mean, what do these tell us about her? Yes, maybe it's just me, but these sort of knee-high boots. Yes! There's a bit of a fusion there between Feeney and Merritt Oppenheim. But her way of showing women having this sort of potency and prowess is to give them fabulous hair, to give them long legs, wonderful stockings or leather boots. And they tend to be armoured in replacing the kind of female, the male knight uh, type. But that self-portrait is beautiful. So you're right in the sense that if you looked at it just as a head portrait, a bust portrait, it, it could be from the 18th century. It's quite academic. It's pristine. It's beautiful. It's recognisable. The skin, the flesh is marble-like. And then you notice the ripped dress, the ripped top. Oh, yes, it's ripped. So the fact that it's, you see, that's ripped at the, that's what I'm saying. This is the four punk feminism that you had. There's ripping. I think it's fabulous. Um, And so it's sort of Debbie Harry style. She ripped the elbows as if somebody or she herself was ripping out of her clothing. And then she's wearing a glove. Now, the glove is one of the most traditional erotic symbols of slowly removing a glove. Oh, really? So not only is the glove a symbol of, you know, about fantasy and wanting to undress the object of desire, but it's hiding a scorpion. And a scorpion is a symbol of sexual passion. So you've all these little nods, a very, as I say, elegant self-portrait. And then the scorpion that's creeping out from under a glove that's about to be removed shows you that it's about something about to happen. Uh, And it again sets her up as a woman who's in charge of her own uh, desire, her own seductiveness. She's not just going to sort of destroy men. She's going to just steer her own passion. She'd hate the word feminist and all that, but I find it really a very encouraging image to think of sort of 1938 again, Spanish Civil War, the outbreak of World War II is on the horizon. She's determined to make her way as a, a surrealist and she's daring at the viewers head on. Uh, gazing right back and it's very powerful and it's a self-portrait yeah absolutely I mean it's quite similar what she does in that work a year later with Leonora Carrington it's called an interior with three women or just called the black room and it's almost quite kind of Velasquez like as well I mean it's very renaissance like and the way that they're staring back at us and I don't know which one Leonora Carrington is but there's definitely the front figure with the red boots and the kind of knight armor almost very mm. kind of noble in a way yes and that's meant to be I mean this is one of a series of work she did sort of based in this sort of boudoir scene with the draped curtains but it is meant to be an homage to her friend Leonor Carrington. There's a kind of mannerism so the exaggerated features are all that bit longer and leaner and there's also a move towards a new kind of androgynous yes. aesthetic which is is intriguing. They're in breeches, they're in boots, they're in armoured breastplates and they're defiant and it tends to be in the eyes and the hair rather than in the lips. So there's always a slight tension between the female as a kind of warrior saviour and dare I say it, the female is someone who's going to wreak havoc and destroy. So you're never sure whether she's just, again, that's a sphinx motif, just killed a male, <laughs> destroyed a male, devoured something. And she's had her meal and she's thundering off or whether she's solving a problem. So she tends to be a figure of knowledge, but also yeah. power. This is why there are new, new female types at a time of war. And they believed artists had weapons in art and culture to change the world. There was a great utopian aspiration I think behind some of these works yeah so fascinating I mean you know the work that she then starts to make during the war years gets so interesting gender and sex this kind of idea of the passive male is really coming into its own I mean what sort of works was she then making throughout the war years I'm thinking of some things like self-portrait with Nico Papaticus yes so he's a beautiful young male who she decides would be beautiful on her canvases as is a long noble tradition but usually where the genders are reversed it's interesting because she also explained the men in her painting sleep because they refuse the male animus in society male civilization what is expected of a male so they reject the warring male all these men tend to appear in 1941 42 43 so when most men will be at the front if they were young and virile what she wants is a greater balance between the male and the female and so that the more civilized more knowledgeable it's matriarchal perspective she has direction would be to go back to women the sphinx is the guardian of knowledge so she's offering no more than a new female type a new male type she did love this type of androgynous male she liked the passive beautiful male they obviously inspired her showing these men who are momentarily stilled and are often in kind of apocryphal landscapes which is like the end of the world 
of what's going to happen next. And you can get into that psyche if you think about um, people under the war, Carrington, her, Oppenheim, all sort of fearful about what was going to happen, genuinely experiencing loss and the trauma of it. So he, he's her, her muse. He's still in a wonderful boudoir scenario. It's curious because she'll always put this sort of female looking as if she's sort of like a cat with a mouse, looking as if she's do I, don't do I. And she creates a nice theatricality around these works, which is telling as well. And it means, I think, that the person looking at the painting can project onto it or step into whatever shoes they most identify with, depending what day of the week it is. But <laughs> I think um, <laughs> I, I think there's something curious about that. And certainly during the war in New York, this is under Peggy Guggenheim, when women's surrealists were getting a certain amount of limelight. You see a, a very diverse styles and subject matter, but the common denomina- denominator would be these strong female types. And Feeney, while the idea of a woman show might not have appealed to her, this was crucial because in 43, the same time she's doing these works, she's included in, yeah, Guggenheim's show in New York of 31 women. That puts her on the map that decade. And I don't know what the critical reception, certainly when Lisa Rivera and I were doing the exhibition on Lino Feeney Theatre of Desire, what I found a lot of young people coming in to see the show, they might not have known surrealism at all, let alone Lino Feeney. But what they were most intrigued by were a lot of these passive, beautiful male nudes. And I would have thought, you know, that wouldn't be so radical or so empowering in sort of 2018, 19. You think can't everybody see everything on the Internet. But I thought it was fabulous that they were so seduced by oil paintings, large scale, just that there was genuinely gender reversal. You know, you go to any national gallery, you're going to be surrounded by all these elongated female nudes dancing around happily without their clothes. And... What people loved was going in and being able to see all these men lying around and women's teasing over their bodies. Totally. And I must say to our listeners, you know, do look up self-portrait with Nico Papatakis because, you know, in a way, his body as well is so curvaceous. I mean, it reminds me of the Rokeby Venus or something, the kind of, you know, Manes Olympia. It seems very objectified and he is this muse and his hands are very delicate and he's almost revealing himself wholeheartedly through these beautiful crisp white sheets. I mean, it's very erotic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just curious that your interpretation, he's he's happily revealing himself. So there you go. So it depends how... Somebody else might find him a little bit coy. But you're right because his hands are what you might describe as strategically placed. The sheet is just there. So, and that is where you have the peekaboo detail we're used to of the nudes. And the drapery all around him. It is such a long tradition of what we can see behind closed doors or not. And the idea that art actually lets you into this erotic space. She did say her art was her way of kind of creating the world she wanted. And I love that. That's so daring and bold it's like nothing less than that i wasn't happy with what i had in the world and i wanted to fashion a new one that must be the definition of art isn't it absolutely but i'm so fascinated by her well first of all her fascination with cats but also her fascination with sphinxes i mean why was she particularly interested in the sphinx and the cat so the cat she did end up with over 20 cats as an elderly lady in paris she said the first cat she met when she moved to her grandmother's house in Trieste. So as a little toddler with her mother. So obviously the cat must have been a great source of delight and solace for her. And then from then on, she loved cats. Leonora Carrington loved them too. Yes. I mean, it's a rite of passage. I Carly Schneeman, who, when I first interviewed you, not her cat liked me when I visited her, I remember. So it's terribly important you do surrealism and feminism that you begin usually chatting about the cat. And I think with Feeney, there was something similar. So she said the cat wasn't just a a favoured pet and animal and a a comrade, but she sort of maps out what she just finds as a kind of feline dream world where cats abide. But what she does with the Sphinx is she makes her super feminine. And the Sphinx can be male or female. We often think of it in more male terms. The surrealist artists were obsessed with the figure of the Sphinx because she's the one who controls the riddle and is linked to the Oedipal complex and Oedipus, who, of course, has to overcome the riddle of the Sphinx, gets the prize of the queen, who turns out to be his mother, and then he blinds himself. So there's lots of sort of Freudian connotations within the scenario. The surrealists were intrigued by it because it involves killing the father, infanticide, because the story of Oedipus is that the father was told he will kill you. And there he he sends him out to be sacrificed, to be killed. And he's not killed because poor people take pity on him. The tale becomes true because he does, in the end, kill his father, bed his mother, and blind himself out of disgust with what he himself has done. So it's fabulously 
twisted Greek myth. And Ovid writes about it, Freud writes about it, the surrealists are intrigued by it because they're quite keen on killing the male civilization of father in the 1920s and 30s. So it's, so it's loaded, yeah, it's loaded for them how they think about it. Where they're thinking about, I suppose, the male figure who might have the fantasy of bedding the mother and killing the father. Feeney focused on the Sphinx, who's the woman who Oedipus has to overcome. So she's a figure of knowledge who is part animal, part woman, and therefore she exaggerates the feline cat-like details of the Sphinx to create this new imago, this new symbolist creature. She is looking a bit to symbolist art too, actually. Again, I think it's a way of presenting a kind of new warrior figure. And she says when she's asked, why do you keep returning to the Sphinx? And she does it during a time of war, really for about a decade, 1939 to 49. She says it's because she's a figure of beauty and knowledge who will overcome the trauma of this time. So there is an idea that she will, at a time of war and grief and horror, she will rise above it, if you like. She's interested in these strong female leader types. So she goes to Egypt then as a kind of pilgrimage. She's thinking about the Sphinx as a character and she creates her own animal symbolism through it. And the cat speaks to that. Um, and it, ways, it allows her to kind of dialogue with what a lot of the male series are interested in, but do her own thing. It allows her to do a self-portrait. Doesn't she always have sort of cat hairs on the paintings or something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, I think that's one of the connoisseurs' tests as to whether this is a genuine Leonore Feeney. She did have a very unusual setup with, with all these cats. And I don't know whether, I, I suppose that perhaps has haunted her life story a little bit. And, and actually, I've heard from other people who knew her very well that one of her main concerns, too, was making enough money to feed cats. But in her apartment in Paris, I mean, so she did live in a menage a trois, too. You know, so she had two men oh, wow. in her home and the cats and held salons. So it, it, it doesn't, it, it takes on a different dynamic when you picture sort of cats and sort of men walking around <laughs> and her having soirees. She's just the sort of dominant sphinx. And also she was friendly then with Brigitte Bardot. So if you think about Brigitte Bardot going from the being fabulous actress and and sex symbol and and increasingly becoming obsessed with animals so i don't know if there's something in it but for her it was the the cat was just the best animal and, and sort of another former friend for her it's interesting you bring up Brigitte Bardot because you know during the 1950s she was making stage costumes I think she designed more than 70 costumes for the Parisian theatres during this period and also for Fellini's film Eight and a Half which I find fascinating because it's just the most opulent grandeur it's incredible that she's kind of combining like we were saying at the beginning making costumes being an embodiment of surrealism I love the quote she says I have always loved and lived my own theatre. Yeah, and that's kind of how we came up with the, the theatre for the exhibition. And she also talked about costumes as a way of moving into another dimension, which is a nice idea too, if you think about it in paintings. But certainly Eight and a Half, one of my favourite movies as a, when I went to college. And the fact then that it transpired when I was discovering Feeney, that she had done costumes, it felt like everything was somehow connected. Kept falling into place. <laughs> yes. I always think, how on earth, why didn't Fellini put her in a movie? Yeah. She was, perhaps she would have been too forceful. But these were her, these were her group, ballet, film. This was work for her. This was commissions where she was working for film and theatre, as well as her doing costumes for great masquerade balls or Rothschild's yeah. balls, which is where she dresses up Brigitte Bardot and herself. She did produce not just fabulous gowns for herself, Fini, but masks. Yes. She took the idea of the masquerade ball a step further in designing these costumes. And it's another part of her great skill that yeah merits closer attention it's so fascinating firstly that she stays in Paris you know when we think of all these because I always think of surrealism kind of going to America with people like Dorothy Tani and Gertrude Abercrombie Gertrude Abercrombie already being there and then you have Mexico with Remedius Varro Frida Carter obviously but also Leonora Carrington and Catty Horner etc but I mean she stays in Paris and I mean her work totally develops right through to the end of her life which uh, you know she she dies in 1996 wow did you ever meet her no I had um, so I had met the Gelidion and sort of visit them and pester them, frankly, to get closer <laughs> to Lenore Fini, it has to be said. And Arlette Suami, who was the director. And at the time, I remember there was two things. One, she said to me, oh, so Peter Webb is, is writing a biography of her. She's frail and we're only allowing him to do interviews. And then finally, she conceded. She died in January and I was scheduled to visit in March. And I had oh. been told at Christmas she's frail again, but she had been 
uh, often you you wrote letters and there was a, I think there was a certain element of curiosity about people I was at that point doing a PhD there was a curiosity also by the fact that you were sort of an Irish a young Irish person because the that opened more doors because they felt you could be more inherently surrealist I think if you are Irish oh why well because they always had this idea of Britain versus Ireland and the map of the surrealist world so they flipped it so that Ireland was much bigger than Britain when they designed a map of the world in 1929 the colonies would be bigger than the the colonizer ditto for Mexico and North America there was the idea that I mean Sam Beckett's in Paris you have James Joyce in Paris she knew James Joyce had met James Joyce Feeney so these were sort of figures who were rebelling against the Catholic Church and were censored in Ireland. So I found it very useful. You didn't say I'm doing a PhD at the Corto. That wouldn't sort of get you an interview with an artist. Whereas if you said I was Irish and fascinated by your art, they felt you might be a fellow spirit, I suppose. But in any case, then she died. She was very poorly and she died. And I always remember thinking, oh, it was sort of awful when I, I got notification then there was a lot of obituaries which was good but they still harked back very much to a kind of 1940s image of her which showed that decades of work because when I was seeing her in Paris these are works being produced in the 80s and 90s so she was she was terribly prolific and there's loads of work and this is when all of a sudden people are discovering women artists and surrealist artists different generations she was saying don't call me woman don't call me feminist don't call me this but she was still producing work and I was interested in 60s 70s 80s feminism and women's art who were surrealists the one decade everyone was so obsessed by was the interwar paris which is why i was so keen to do post-world war ii surrealism because that's when it was more diverse simply there were more women involved yeah and if you make it sort of one little 10 20 years you immediately will only have the sort of 10 white male artists dominating it and uh, whereas if you open up the period and and Breton dies in 1966 so much later in Paris, they're still having meetings until 1969 when they say they can't kind of control historical surrealism. It's going even bigger after the events of 68. So I felt there was there was a whole history, not just a history of, of women, but of, of male surrealists and international surrealists that hadn't been done. And so I obviously would sort of relay this when I was talking to people who are still alive. And, and an artist always wants to talk about the work they did yesterday, not 40 years ago. Um, but as I say, it was soul destroying. I didn't get to meet her. So I only got to meet her through her art. But you always want to still have a chat, don't you? Sit down and, and actually talk cats and fashion and, <laughs> and, and stockings. Actually, it's usually just to get into the daily life. And then that helps you think about their artwork. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's work that she was making in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, it, she returned to this gorgeous figurative paintings, super meticulous, but the colour scheme is almost like a dream. You know, we have these females rendered in a space occupied by using whites, pale yellows, light greens, bright oranges. Tell us about this later work. What do you think she was exploring here? Yes, I mean, she goes through a, almost an alchemical abstract phase, but then you're right, by the time we get back to the 80s, they're often a fresco-like quality to some of the works, Yeah, which I don't know if that's nostalgia, but I think there's a fabulous confidence and there's, there's this orange palette that starts to emerge, which I find quite curious. There's almost a kind of comedia dell'arte element to it. There's something where you, you definitely have theatre going on, stock characters, caricatures. And I think it's where she almost is creating a new type of fairy tale in the 80s, too, with a lot of these works. But there's a macabre element, which has always been in her work. But her female types change, I think. They're not these kind of hard-edged, sphinx, erotic characters that we got in the 40s who look more like mannequins in terms of their bodies. So there's a softer edge to them. And I think she's really gaining confidence. I'm really intrigued by a lot of her later works. And also I was quite intrigued by the way she often sets up narratives between younger girls and older women mm. in some of the works. And I think that her thinking through her own evolution as an artist. Mm. There is a work called Capital Punishment of 1969, which is sort of this red-haired woman yeah. and there's three women together we still have a return to a lot of these ideas of unveiling of females and female sororities so you've sort of groups of women coming together we're not sure what they're plotting yeah I quite liked a lot of her I mean you you, you like the cats but um, <laughs> so sometimes they're little girls you know who are all angelic like with these cats and yeah. other times they, they look like they might be about to sort of do something yeah Water comes to the fore quite a bit too in yes. the 70s and 80s, which I find intriguing. So I think they get very mythological towards the end of her life. And of course, a lot of them, she's writing novels. I think she's influenced by poetry and something quite illustrative about the work. 
but they're definitely in, in terms of a kind of theatricality they're very powerful yeah and the technique is softer but much more sophisticated and she is they are still oil on canvas I mean they wow. kind of look like tempera but they're oil yeah. on canvas it's so beautiful the way that she portrays skin as well it's a sort of fluorescent almost alchemic transformative thing yes and she is interested in alchemy the symbolism of color but that was also why when I first discovered her I was saying my god these are fantastic works this is an exciting artist yeah. where is she I mean, you have that with so many women artists. So you'll find the one work from 1936 or 46 is all we have. Or even the little uh, hermit sphinx that we talked about earlier, which is in the Tate collection. I mean, they were gifted that, I think it was in 2003. Wow. So, you know, very late in the day. And if you don't get a sort of stronger sense of a range of an artist's career, you can't possibly get into the adjust appreciation of what they're doing or how surrealism was evolving. Yeah, I think it's time that we had a sort of giant retrospective of her in the UK. But what does she mean to you? Gosh, I mentioned she was sort of an, an anti-Eve. She's sort of an anti-mother figure, which I like. <laughs> you know, I have a penchant for the Marquis de Sade, but the he has this character, Juliet, who's a, the viceful sister, the convent-educated girl who turns towards vice. <laughs> now, and again, I don't want to get psychobiographical about it myself. But, but I do think there's something in that where you have this idea of these strong women who you come across, who are artists and writers, who are saying, you should read Juliet. You should read this book. You should be reading and who are giving you these indicators through their art. So to understand Fini, you have to follow her down these various routes and you have to discover a different canon and a subculture, if you want to call it that. You have to read about the Marquis de Sade because she was going to illustrate the Marquis de Sade and Juliet in 1944. Yeah. So for me, it's chaotic and rhizomatic, but they come together where all these little things start to make sense. And that's why she becomes this kind of anti-mother figure who's saying, don't do what everyone's telling you to read or you need to fight against the system a bit more and is inspiring because she did it without apology in style yeah and was magnificent till the end and whether it was an interview whether she's doing documentaries producing work i mean the work ethic is fabulous but still just genuinely inspiring as a bona fide modern woman who you're thinking wow you know you want to share that kind of character with your students with your readers with your people and sort of say these are role models we that surely uh, deserve more attention so I see her in that way as a kind of anti-mother figure, even though she hated the word mother. <laughs> and as someone who I did come across at a young age and I keep coming across and working towards. But I think I would have just liked to sit down really and had a good drink with her. That would have been fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alice, I, I'm just so excited about the future of Leonor Fini because I think thanks to you, she's brought to this new generation. And I know that so many artists my age are absolutely fascinated by her and just listening to you speak I mean it's just unlocked so many doors for me and I know that you do want to have a drink and you do want to interview her so as this is the Great Women Artists podcast we do always ask our guests if you had that drink with Leonor Feeney what would you say to her? I want to talk to her about those Juliet drawings she did in 1944 and did she really print them on the Vatican Press? <laughs> That is just poetry in itself. What's the story behind the Vatican Press? She published, so she did 22 illustrations for the Marquis de Sade's Juliet. Yeah. She was in Rome and she claimed to have printed them on the Vatican Press. So, I mean, to go into the papacy, Juliet is all about, you know, how hideous the priests and the clerics are. Juliet is the most libertine feminist you could ever find. So she's sort of the voice of of the Marquis de Sade, who who dares to everything, kills her father, kills her child. A lot of male surreals are interested by Justine. Feeney does Juliet. So she does the, the libertine whore, the libertine woman who has no sense of morality. And, <gasps> and I think the fact that Feeney, she produces these drawings which have children and females, which are really quite gruesome, and which again offer this sort of radical new female type that Feeney obviously was excited by. Did she wear purple stockings or, you know, bishop <laughs> stockings when she was printing them? Because I just feel that must have been a whole performance in and of itself. Yeah. And to do it in fascist Italy, I mean, <laughs> God, I mean, that's just, uh, I, she should have been, you know, sainted for that. But I do think that just shows how bold and daring she was. <laughs> Fantastic. Alice Mann, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to the 47th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Alice Mann on Leonor Feeney. I am just completely amazed at Feeney's life and work. 
And I think thanks to Alice's fantastic work, we are going to be seeing a lot more of her in future exhibitions. As always, I have linked to more articles, videos and resources in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Laura Hendry. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 